A very good evening. Um, welcome you all to this public lecture um, entitled The Law of Finance and the Abyss. And we've got four speakers lined up. And uh, the speakers are Katharina Pistor. She is um, at the moment at the law department as the Schmitzu visiting professor, normally teaches at Columbia. And next to her is Julia Black. She is um, also from the law department. And at present, she is um, our boss. She is um, the <laughs> pro-director for research. Next to her is a true giant in economics, um, Charles Goodhart. And he worked for the Bank of England and is now an emeritus professor at LSE. And next to him is John Danielson, um, who is also an economist and the director, one of the two directors of the Systemic Risk Center. And without further ado, I'll hand over to Katarina to present her thesis. Thank you very much, um, Eva. And I just before I start my lecture, I just want to thank you, um, thank the London School of Economics, and particularly the law department, for hosting my stay here in London for the last two weeks, which was tremendously enjoyable. Um, also, thanks to um, the Center for. Um, 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 systemic Risk um, and the Financial Market Group for hosting this fantastic seminar that we just had this afternoon for speakers who came and presented their work here. So I'm, I'm enormously delighted to be able um, to, to present um, some of my thoughts um, here today. And um, um, let me just try sort of to give you um, an idea of what the core features or the core thesis of my talk will be before I go into the detail. So I will try to make and substantiate essentially four claims um, tonight. Um, the first is very, very simple and I think straightforward and certainly not difficult to understand for lawyers, which is that finance is coded in law and that therefore law itself can bring the financial system to the abyss. Second, if and when a legally constructed financial system has reached the point of self-destruction, this can be stopped only by the suspension of the full force of the law. Third, the selective suspension of the law has distributional effects, which can trigger political backlash, and those in turn will make it more difficult next time around when we have a crisis to manage it. Fourth, the way finance is coded in law has not changed much since the global crisis. We privilege finance actually not only at the abyss, but exemptions from rules everybody, everyone else must abide by are woven into the very fabric of our financial system, and I think it's time to begin to reconsider this as well. So let me start with two illustrations to recall what it felt like, must have felt like to be at the abyss of the system. Both illustrations are from the year 2007, but as Didier Sarnat has suggested, a major crisis is actually a series of earthquakes that do not stop, and the series of earthquakes did start in 2007. So suppose you, are, you have deposited significant amounts of your savings um, in a bank that has done enormously well over the last couple of years, expanded its loan portfolio by about 20% year after year after year. But one morning you wake up and you listen to the BBC and you learn that this very bank has requested emergency lending from the Bank of England. You check your paperwork and you realize that about 2,000 of your savings of the total of 50,000 that you have deposited are insured. So you run out to the bank because you want to try to save the remainder of your money and you see long queues lining up. You run back home, you're trying to transfer your money online and of course the system crashes. Illustration two is suppose now you work at a, at a financial company here in London and one day in the middle of the summer, when everybody else is on vacation, you get an email from a professional acquaintance who works at a client investment bank. The email, that's an original text, the email has the subject line, sorry to bother you. And the text reads, vacation, stop. Margin call coming your way, stop. Want to give you a heads up. The next day, your firm receives a bill over $1.8 billion dollars from that very client um, and suppose further that this was the first loss in 15 years um, of in, in, of, on any of your derivatives portfolio. Now the bank in my example of course was Northern Rock and the other firm was IRG Financial Products as you will undoubtedly have um, realized the conversation did take place in real time between IRG GFP here in London and Goldman Sachs in New York in July of 2000. 
six. The amount of $1.8 billion, of course, looks like peanuts in light of what was yet to come, but I think both illustrations help um, me make one of the core theses that I want to present um, tonight, which is that modern finance is coded in law and that the enforcement of all legal commitments can bring the financial system to the abyss. AIG Financial Product and Goldman Sachs haggled over the amount of margin calls that AIG FP would have to pay out, but they did not haggle over the legal commitment that they had made ex ante, that if a particular, um, or their, their contracts had um, crossed a particular threshold as agreed in the contract, they would indeed have to pay out. And of course, paying out all the amounts that were due on these margin calls could, in theory, at least bring AIG financial products to its knees. Luckily, AIG FP itself had made, um, um, had an open credit line with its parent company, um, which gave it a little longer lifeline. But as we know, of course, today as well, even a multi-trillion dollar company like AIG parent in the United States can be quite literally bleed to death. Um, and therefore, it had to be bailed out um, eventually. So both stories essentially capture what I mean by the law and finance paradox that I have um, formulated in a recent paper, which, which, which basically says that legal commitments make financial markets. This is true not only for old-fashioned banking, but it's actually even more true for the parallel or shadow banking system that we have today. A market-based financial system at global scale would not exist without law that makes commitments credible and differentiates rights so that some get better rights than others. Critically, however, the same legal devices that help build and scale finance to size can bring it to the abyss and in the worst case scenario trigger its self-destruction. How then does law scale up a system to global size and complexity? Does this necessarily lead to downturns? And if so, how exactly does law bring down the very system it has helped create? So I'm starting again from the basic premise that modern finance is coded in law. I will try to substantiate this a little bit more by basically saying our, um, we have familiar legal institutions that are such, of course, are harmless, even positive, um, and are therefore largely deemed beneficial, which are the basic legal code or the, uh, the basic elements of the code of finance. And these are property law, collateral law, trust and entity law, and bankruptcy law, which validates all of the above. So the acid test for all of this is always in bankruptcy, and Charles Goodhart has made this point um, this afternoon in our, in our seminar as well. These legal institutions have facilitated the expansion of financial markets to national and indeed to global scale. There is no doubt, of course, that personal trust, kinship, reputational bonds, and the like support many credit relations, even quite sizable ones. Yet these mechanisms cannot be scaled to the same extent that law can, because quite simply put, law can be enforced among strangers, and law has become portable with the help of conflict of law rules, um, um, legal harmonization, and mutual recognition. This has made it possible to create a global system rooted in domestic law and for the most part in the law of only two jurisdictions, the United Kingdom and the state of New York, with some Jersey and Cayman Islands sprinkled in. The quality of a legal right, that's really ultimately critical, especially in the bankruptcy case, the quality of a legal right is determined in relation to competing rights. Law can be employed to create stronger rights by way of prioritizing or asset shielding. So property rights are stronger than contractual rights. Secured interests are stronger than unsecured. And priority rules in bankruptcy determine the pecking order for those who have to settle with the leftovers. Trust and entity law create firewalls to protect assets from creditors of the original owner and those of the trustee or manager. These devices can also be used to repackage assets based on the nature of the risk and sell them to different investors, thus diversifying the risk, at least in theories. And of course, all of these elements can be seen in the examples I gave you above. So maybe this is less clear if we only look at our depositor at Northern Rock. She may have thought that the money in the bank was hers, and she now has to discover, of course, that she has nothing more than an unsecured contractual claim against the money, against the bank for her money, and that only part of that is insured. 
But looking at Northern Rock's funding structure, we of course see all these elements employed. Um, Northern Rock did not fund itself in the traditional way of just having deposits to use the money then invested further, but it used sort of the pass-through model. And behind the pass-through model, we of course see the creation of a master trust in Jersey, um, where you securitize these assets and then you um, issue um, 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 interests to your investors who, who, who buy them. Um, and, and depending on what legal structure you use, you can also collateralize them so that they have priority next time around. So this is how you do securitization or you do covered bonds. You basically use the legal mechanisms of trust, limited liability partnerships, limited liability companies, and collateral law. Similarly, in the case of AIG, um, the AIG subsidiary here in London, of course, was shielded to some extent from the parent company. It was had a different corporate veil. It was a different legal entity, and yet they were joined at the hips again through an open credit line, a contractual commitment by the parent to offer financial liquidity, which helped bleed to death almost the parent company in the United States. The main line of business of the subsidiary here in London was to issue credit derivatives, and again, they use very similar um, mechanisms. You basically create a pool of assets, you tranche it, um, you hide them behind or put them into a legal shell, and then you um, in, uh, issue, issue interest in, in, into, that, in, into that shell. Um, and of course, you make commitments to your investors that depending on what the, the valuation of these assets are on the market, you will have to add up and, and, and pay up margin calls. So in a sense, property, collateral, and entity law ensure that some claims are better rights than others. That's what law does. Law is not only creating a level playing field. Law has to create hierarchies to resolve conflicts. They're essentially the jokers in a, in a, in a, in a game of cards. They trump other rights. Importantly, these rights are enforceable not only against the contractual party, but against anybody, any competing claim that is advanced by strangers, whether they did know about other transactions or had ever met any of the rights holders. That's what law can, that's what few other social systems or, or norm systems can do. Pro furthermore, property rights have been sufficiently standardized so that their content does not require proof. Once the legal the, the right legal mechanism has been grafted onto a particular asset or interest, everything else follows because it's essentially hardwired in the law. Having a joker, therefore, enhances one's chances of winning the game. The more jokers one has, the more secure one feels, and the more bets one is therefore willing to make. But what if everyone has a joker? And how can that possibly happen? In a normal card game, of course, there are only two jokers, right? Um, in the Roman law tradition, only those assets that were specifically enumerated in law could possibly be property rights. And even though the English legal system is a bit more complex and arguably also more flexible in crafting priority, priority rights, nonetheless, at least traditionally, there have been certain um, procedures for perfecting rights that made it costly to achieve these priorities. In finance, in the area of finance, these legal restrictions have been eroded often discarded as mere formalities that would make it more difficult to build financial markets. This applies to the perfection of security interest, the transfer of full title over a long chain of title holders, and to bankruptcy safe harbors for derivatives and repos, which effectively elevate these claims to super priority rights. Last but not least, parties can choose the law that shall govern these assets while also claiming that they, protect their they are protected as property. Usually, we, we reserve the private autonomy to choose your law to contractual claims, but we have extended effectively this also to property claims. Put differently, the players of the game have been allowed to print their own jokers. The collateral guidelines of the European Central Bank and increasingly other central banks have added fuel to the fire. They have accepted an ever-expanding class of assets minted by the private sector as collateral for cash. If you have a put option, to cash in your joker, of course, a joker inflation cannot necessarily devalue them. And yet there is a catch. How good a superior right is depends on how good the underlying economic is, interest is and how many others have superior rights. When the housing market tanks, even secured interests will be worth less than they were expected to be. Thus, the margin calls on credit derivatives at AIGFP. And even if, as in the case of Northern Rock, the underlying assets are not subprime and are still performing, the investor's appetite to buy more of the same in future securitizations um, diminishes. And if that's your funding model, then, of course, you will go, go down as well. 
Worse, everyone holds a joker, and actually they know that everyone holds a joker because they're all operating with the same master agreement by ISDA, for example. And so the key question is we no longer actually know by what meter rules we will decide whose joker will trump. In that kind of context, I can't rely anymore on the superiority of my right, but time becomes of the essence. First comes, first serve. So I run, and of course we know what the effect is of a run. By exercising their so-called superior rights, the rights holders will therefore bring the financial system to its knees. We have known this, of course, since the first run on assets that gave us bankruptcy law and since the fund runs of banks that gave us deposit insurance, but strangely enough, not always workable resolution regimes. However, we have fooled ourselves into believing that risk could be purged from the system by decentralizing risk management to the parties with the greatest interest in making money of it. Once a run ensues, there are not many options left. Policymakers can choose between the skiller of a debt moratorium and the corruptus of offering liquidity where no liquidity is owed. A debt moratorium is almost certainly counterproductive in a world where financial intermediaries are part of a single highly interdependent network and rely extensively on refinancing. So rather than imposing a stay, policymakers in the last crisis, foremost among them central banks, have offered liquidity by selectively buying up assets that no longer had any takers. The jokers had become toxic. This, of course, is also a suspension of the rules, if not of specific contractual rights, of the basic rules of the game, because it undermines the very principle of a competitive market economy that losers are out, whether they are assets or entities. Moreover, unlike debt moratoria, which tend to be temporary, no end date was set, and it was all left in the discretion of central banks. It is probably fair to say that the central banks, the C5, the C6, however you want to put it, rescued our financial system in this past crisis, but they did this by effectively suspending the principal norm of a competitive market economy. They may deserve praise for the rescue, but almost eight years since the beginning of the earthquakes described earlier, we have still not weaned off finance from liquidity boosts and quantitative easing. Perhaps even more damaging in the long term, the distributional effects of the rescue have undermined central bank impartiality, a key pillar of their legitimacy as independent agencies. Focusing the rescue operations on the core of the system, where its survival was at stake, may well have been the most effective way to stop the hemorrhaging. And still, those who did not receive support or received support only belatedly amongst them homeowners feel aggrieved, and you can hardly blame them for that. In response, lawmakers have begun to rein in central banks. And when looking at the recent congressional grilling of the Fed's chair, Janet Yellen, or the fraud inquiry into the handling of the liquidity auctions by the Bank of England during the crisis, it seems that we have not seen the end of it yet. Indeed, legal changes already implemented in several countries limit the discretion of central banks to provide emergency lending and require participation by elected politicians, mostly by ministers of finance, treasury secretaries, and so forth. Perhaps we will never face a crisis situation of the past again. However, notwithstanding the fact that many reforms have been implemented and some preventive measures have been taken, I'm, I'm not sure that we have really fully proved, crisis-proofed our financial system. Indeed, I don't doubt that we could possibly do so. Most importantly, the basic legal code of our financial system has not changed. We have fiddled with the regulatory scaffolding, capital requirements, liquidity buffers, better coordination amongst regulators, but less so with the decentralized joker production. To be sure, some measures have been taken, such as the new ISTA protocol and exercising netting rights under the master agreement, but we don't really know yet how this will work and whether it will be effective, and we also don't really understand how it might affect the over-the-counter derivatives markets. Further, new financial instruments are being minted as we speak using the very same building blocks um, that we discussed earlier, true sale and trust to make assets bankruptcy remote, property rights and collateral to give them prior priority in bankruptcy, and so forth. Just like their predecessors, these instruments are created in light of, indeed in response to, the regulations that have been put in place. This, after all, is the art of coding finance in law by creating enforceable claims, preferably jokers, in the gaps of the regulatory scaffolding that will be inevitably be left behind. Such a system is inherently unstable. 
the temptation to engineer rights that are better than those of others is simply too great. Such a, such a system must necessarily rely on the implicit backstopping of the polity where the crisis happens to manifest itself, but we also, of course, have learned that not, not all polities are equally equipped to do so, um, and some actually also have signaled that they're no longer willing to continue in this role. Further, the system relies on the selective exemption from general legal rules meant to apply across the board, and importantly, not only in times of emergencies. Careful examination of legal change over the last decades or so um, um, in regards to financial collateral, the law of trust, um, conflict of law rules, and etc., suggest that we have built elasticity into the system, not only in moments of crisis, but into the various structures of the system. All this has been beautifully captured in a remark by the British legal historian Bernard Rudden, already in 1994, who said in an article then, and I quote, the traditional concepts of the common law of property were created for and by the ruling classes at a time when the bulk of the capital was land. Nowadays, the great wealth lies in stocks, shares, bonds, and the like, and is not just movable but mobile, crossing oceans at the touch of a keypad in the search of a fiscal utopia. In terms of legal theory and technique, however, there has been a profound, if little discussed, evolution by which the concepts originally devised for real property have been detached from their original object only to survive and flourish as a means of, ha of handling abstract value. The feudal calculus, he concludes, lives and breeds, but its habitat is wealth, not land. In the old days, the law of equity was the key building block for capital. In our own times, democratically elected legislators and, of course, the EU lawmaking apparatus have introduced legal change that exempts finance from the need to perfect financial collateral, to follow basic rules for title transfer property without losing the privilege further down the line, the application of certain bankruptcy rules, most importantly, stay and avoidance, and more in some jurisdictions than in others, the liability of trusts for managing trust assets. And this has by some, uh, some authors have actually referred to this as trust stripping. There's therefore room, and I would argue, need for a normative debate about the financial system and its legal structure that we want and the appropriateness of co accommodating law, uh, law um, for the financial system, which of course has not only benefits but also substantial costs. We also need to think about the possible effects of systematically privileging the financial system on the rule of law and, of course, on inequality. Last but not least, we need more research about how legal privileges may increase the probability of approaching the abyss again. Thank you very much for your attention. And uh, we're, we're going to continue this evening um, in doing something that LSE is very well known for, um, and that is bringing together different disciplines. So we started out with a legal theory of finance that looks as law as sort of a toolbox that creates an environment in which finance can operate. And that very toolbox um, can then turn against the system when a crisis event occurs and then something else needs to happen to remove the full force of these tools that have been craftily implemented and I'm now handing over to Julia who will um, illuminate this with subject that. further <laughs> uh, well good evening um, everybody and again thank you to Eva and um, for organising, Katerina for coming over, and Charles and John for participating, and obviously for you two for coming. So Katerina has given us a, um, a kind of challenging, uh, part, part sort of familiar understanding of the role of law in, in markets and constituting markets, and a sort of challenges to um, that uh, that which facilitates things can also destroy them. Um, and I want to not necessarily take on that but just a thesis, but just explore it a little bit more by thinking about the relationship between law markets and, and crises and thinking about what it is that law does um, quite fundamentally within a to, to create a market economy. So law, is, as Eva and Katerina have been talking about, has this, it's always talked about as having this facilitative role. Right, provides the infrastructure. It provides the infrastructure for exchange-based relationships, collaborative, collaborative relationships, uh, relationships in, uh, which are just spot, 
interactions and relationships which are stable and long-standing through defining particular organisational structures, partnerships, mutuals, companies, etc. And the way that it has done that has changed over time and there's a a significant literature and and history on on exactly the evolution of that relationship and whether it is one which naturally moves to a functional efficiency um, at any particular moment or whether it is one which actually isn't particularly efficient but at least it's stable, so at least it provides that, to one which is actually fundamentally based on social power, um, and prevailing power relationships, which are then crystallised and, in the common law system, encrusted, in fact, because they stay for some considerable time, um, in law over time. And so there's that idea that law is, is facilitating particular types of relationships, perhaps for efficiency, perhaps just for stability, perhaps just to favour the, the particular ruling class um, when that particular legal instrument was created. But it doesn't only just enable people to do what they want. It then has this sort of constituent role. It then defines what those relationships are going to be. And as Catherine has talked about, it defines that in the the economic world by defining, and in other worlds as well, actually, that we live in, by defining rights and liabilities and most particularly hierarchies. In In situations of contest, who's going to win? One of the other functions of law is a dispute resolution role, and we're very used in the common law system to conceiving that as being the zero-sum game. And so the hierarchy, the ability to pull the joker out of the pack, um, as Catherine has been portraying it, becomes absolutely critical um, when uh, crises and other moments crystallise. And also, as we've heard, in the financial space, law constitutes the products which are being sold. They are, which are being exchanged, they are bundles of rights and liabilities which are transferring risk. And so what law also enables to do is to separate, in some circumstances, individuals from the consequences of their actions. And it does that quite nicely and neatly. We know that through limited liability, for example. So law then has an interesting role in markets, particularly in financial markets, which are held up as being, you know, kind of paragons of efficiency, if you were to look at them in a kind of very bare-bones, basic, you know, level 101 neoclassical economic theory. But when you actually look at the way that law is being used by its participants to constitute relationships, then it's being used to transfer risks and to transfer and insulate people from the consequences of their actions. So that, in particular, it creates the ability for agency relationships. And in creating the ability for agency relationships, you create participants who are not the end dealers of transactions, but who are acting always on behalf of somebody else. So they can always pass the consequences of the price, of the trade, further down the line. They never have to bear those consequences. Law enables them to cascade those out through the market. Paradoxically, that can mean that the markets themselves are quite inefficient. One of the challenging things when thinking about the um, manipulation of the different benchmarks, uh, forex trades, LIBOR, etc., is that once you start poking around in the actual infrastructure of this market, you start to think, well, is it not blindingly obvious to the participants there that manipulation is absolutely possible? Why don't market participants care? Why doesn't the buy side care particularly that it's actually not getting exactly the best price is it just that it's actually because it's so small it's you know it's only one or two or less you know point 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 of a basis point off what the efficient price would be that actually is going to take the hit for some other functional efficiency or is it actually no because it doesn't actually have to bear the cost as it were of the inefficient price but it can pass that down the line so i think one of the interesting things about looking at what we have uh, in economic terms, being taught to assume are absolutely the, the paragon of the spot trade, the efficient market, are actually fundamentally quite inefficient. Why? Because the players don't care whether the price is efficient or not, because legally they're in, engaged in relationships which enable them to pass the consequences of that trade further down the line. So law does enable people to play. As Katarina says, you know, the toolbox um, approach. I think it's it's kind of a Meccano set with bits of clay in between, right? Because some of it comes in pre-packaged forms, um, but in fact you can actually build that in particular ways and in particular creative ways. So you have this juxtaposition of the the malleable and um, 
and the, and the rather more um, sort of hard-edged prepackaged components. So law does all of that. It constitutes the products, it constitutes the relationships, um, and it also, however, it gets even more complicated than that because law itself is internally heterogeneous. So we've heard about contract law, trust law, property law. In fact, each one of those different areas of law has its own logic, its own internal sense of the appropriate definition of a right, the appropriate grounds for a claim. And what you can do, if you're a really clever lawyer, is you can manipulate those to your heart's content. So you can provide the same functional efficiency from an economic point of view in terms of the distribution of rights and liabilities, but you can use different parts of the toolbox or different parts of the Meccano and Clay set to actually create that. What does that mean? That means that actually, although from a functional point of view, yes, um, a hierarchy has been there, yes, a risk has been transferred, etc. From an internal logic point of view, law is internally fractured. And that has implications for when we come to crisis, which is something I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Now, not only is law internally fractured um, on the common law side, of course, law is not just law from the common law side. You also have the regulatory aspect as well. And you have statute law, which has come in, and where law is used absolutely not in a facilitative role particularly, but totally in a political and instrumental role. That's what regulative law is. It is the embodiment of a political set of choices, compromise, and therefore power relations. And it may run at complete odds to the logic of the common law or the private law, because we're talking about common law systems. And you can see this in the area of fiduciary duties. Okay, so those of you who don't know about fiduciary duties, they're, they're, they're rather lovely. They're quite quaint now, actually. Um, but they basically say that you have to look after your client's interests and uh, you're not to take a secret profit uh, from a transaction um, and that you're not to have you know, conflicts of interest and profit from those conflicts of interest without the kind of express consent um, of your principal. Lovely, lovely notions. Completely squashed now by contract law. Total extermination. Okay, contract law now enables you, after a slow attrition starting in the mid-1990s, to actually exclude any fiduciary responsibilities from your contractual relationships whatsoever. If anything was a death to fairness in markets, it's been contract law. Okay, and the English courts have been totally, totally on board in enabling that to happen. On the other side, the regulators have quite stuck to this notion of fiduciary, no conflicts of interest, but only for certain types of clients. In, I'm talking about the UK and, to an extent, the parts of the EU. The, their private law uh, is having a different relationship, a different struggle going on between the different duties. But we have twin track running between the regulatory side and the private law side in the duties which are expected of principals to their agents. And it is a complete clash. We have common law running off the rails in one direction, and we have the regulatory rules defining those different rights and liabilities in a completely contradictory direction. So what happens when the two meet? Well, we have a hierarchy there as well. Okay? And statute can pull out the joker to change the common law. But we have another thing which we have to bear in mind, which is who's writing those rules, because there is then a, a hierarchy within the public law sphere as well that actually has to be primary legislation. It can't be anything else. It has to be parliament. It okay? can't be a regulator who can do that. And so we have different hierarchies within the legal structures themselves, and we have different logics within that um, box that we've so-called just been calling law as being internally heterogeneous and fractured. Okay, so all of this actually doesn't matter in good times. Okay, we don't notice it. Classic socio-legal um, observation about the role of law is that as far as parties are concerned, when they're interacting... They have no idea, okay? It's kind of a hum that just goes on in the background. Kind of, you turn on your car, you drive it, you don't care what's happening under the bonnet, it just kind of works, right? So, and in fact, your relationships may evolve in a way um, which is actually not the way that they were initially conceived and encoded and crusted in your contract or in your um, different legal instrument. 
They all evolve in, in a particular way. Probably you don't even know, in fact, what your legal rights and obligations are that you're entering into. That, of course, is one of the classic uh, or seminal or notable or whatever um, uh, things that we found out in relation to the crisis that actually people had no idea what types of rights and liabilities they're entering into. They haven't got a clue, okay? It paid a yield. What else do you need to know? Nothing, right? You just need to know what the coupon is, what the profit's going to be, what your risk might be, roughly, broadly, but actually you really just need to know kind of the coupon rate and that's it. You know, don't ask any questions. And so people will enter into and are acting. So, okay, law is encoding finance, but invisibly. And people are interacting in ways they are actually completely, largely ignorant of the types of different rights and liabilities they, they're getting into. Therefore, the risk that they're taking on, uh, let alone that there might be a hierarchy and that they will be at the bottom of the pack. So what then happens in a crisis? Well, as everything's been moving around quite happily, then when the music stops, as we all know, there are never enough seats to go round. And so all these risks crystallise. So then what happens is actually a hell of a mess, <laughs> okay? because in terms of the scale, the complexity, um, but in terms also of trying to then, for law itself, what happens then is law ceases to operate in its facilitative role, but actually takes on its dispute resolution role, and in so doing has to reconstruct the relationships which have been created by people playing around with the sandbox uh, in the sandbox with all the tools and clay and whatever metaphors you want to bring into, into mind. Because all of those things, one thing about freedom of contract is all of these things are valid, all of these things which are created are valid until they are tested in the court. Then when a crisis hits, they come into court. Court in dispute resolution mode now, has to, now actually turns into categorization mode, taxonomy mode. It looks as what is being created looks at its own internal heterogeneity and says, okay, well, which bit does this fit into? Does this fit into a trust bit, a proper bit, a contract bit? In which case, which logic then applies? Is it the trust? Is it the property? Is it the contract? Or is it some kind of melding of those? Can we meld? How can we cross boundaries? Can we cross boundaries from these different logics from one to the other, from the tort to the contract to the property? Or do we close them down and say, no, you've actually just got to be definitely one and not the other? And as we're using, as Katarina talked about, we're using constructs which were created, you know, centuries ago to apply to physical property and which encoded themselves, their own power structures at the time. That categorization moment which occurs on dispute resolution can be hugely disruptive across the markets. Why? Because nobody anticipated it because partly it might not have been able to be part an anticipated, because the courts don't always follow what it is the market's doing. Okay, sometimes they'll sit back and say, okay, well, the market's doing this, the market thought that, okay. But, you know, they have some pride. Um, they are the owners of, of the law, and they will be saying, well, actually, no, you thought you were entering into X type of relationship, but in fact, the way that you've constructed these tools that you all assembled means that, in fact, your relationship is this. Parties weren't prepared for that, they didn't, they didn't cover for that, they didn't hedge for that. Perhaps what they thought was a joker turns out to be not a joker after all. So I think when we talk about needing to suspend law in order to enable, enable um, the crisis to be resolved, we need to think about, well, which, actually, which bits? Is it a suspension of law or is the shock that, in fact, the way in which courts are then interpreting the contracts, the things that should be created, are causing disruptions across the market because of the, the way that they were unexpected. And moreover, what role does regulatory law play in this? Because in some instances, we actually had to create law in order to handle the crisis. We were lucky in the UK. Northern Rock gave us a dry run. Okay? It enabled us to pass a piece of emergency legislation through Parliament to give the Bank of England a stack of powers which are now basically encoded in the European resolution um, regime, more or less. Okay? If we hadn't had Northern Rock when 2008 hit from sort of March, April, May, certainly June, July, uh, we would have been in serious trouble. You know, the lifeboat 
let's all get around the table and kind of bail it out would not have worked. So, in fact, we needed law at the time of the crisis, certainly in the UK, to give public authorities the powers to actually sort out, and it were, the mess that had been created by the private actors in the market with the toys that they created. So I'm going to leave it there, but just by closing on a few extra, a few sort of closing points. First, that the, the integration of law and markets is fundamental. Okay, law provides the infrastructure, you know that, provides the, it constitutes relationships, it constitutes products and enables stability. It also enables markets to be inefficient because it enables people to pass on the consequences of their interactions further down the line such that they are not in the least bit interested necessarily in price efficiency as long as they can hide the lack of price efficiency from their principle and make sure that they are profiting themselves along the way. Further, the law is internally fractured and heterogeneous and further that it itself has its own hierarchies because it comes from different sources. In normal times, none of this matters. Okay? It works. People carry on. But in terms of crisis, that's really when law comes into its own, both in the positive um, and in the negative, but also the fact that we may need law on one type of law, which is the enabling statutory public law, to enable us to sort out some of the mess that those playing in the private law field have created for themselves. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. I think we now know a bit more about um, the limitations and the, the sort of the, the kind of tool that law is. And it seems to be a tool that acts in an invisible space initially and allows actors to shield themselves from liability and responsibility. And then, and then when its full force becomes apparent, it sort of pulls out tools that allow us to modify um, sort of the, the results that would otherwise occur. And, um, and, and, and so, the, so there's something about the law that makes it sort of flexible, slightly perhaps unpredictable, and, um, and I'm, I'm quite keen to sort of hear a reaction from the economists in the room about how they feel law and, and finance and law and, and economics interact. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Um, I entirely agree with uh, my two legal colleagues that law provides absolutely a central basis uh, for the conduct of finance. Um, I would start to ask her with a sort of slight comment about what Julia said about not really knowing what is in the contracts that form the basis of all the undertakings that we uh, in finance carry out. Um, and this is, a, if you look at these documents, they're usually about 190 pages long. And my God, are they boring. <laughs> and I you know, try to read some of them through, and I get about as far as page three, and then I give up or go to sleep or both. And frankly, you lawyers have a, a sort of a sort of underlying sort of a, I'm not quite certain what uh, what the right phrase is, but you know what is the boilerplate. And you know that there are about four or five places in these huge contracts which you actually have to look at. And we, who are not lawyers, don't. So you know what's in them because you only look at the odd bits that really matter. We don't know what matters and what doesn't. We get bored stiff, and so we never read them. So the, and it's a kind of legal conspiracy to ensure that you're the only people around who actually know what's going on. Um, and I don't actually think that... Uh, northern, I'm, yes, you're quite right. We didn't have a proper resolution law, um, and the insofar as a bank was going to be resolved, it was going to be resolved under the same bankruptcy law in this country as any other uh, company, and it was entirely inappropriate for four banks. Uh, to be resolved in this way, and Northern Rock did give us a wake-up call. It, it actually didn't, in my view, make very much difference 
to what happened in 2008-2009. What did make the difference was the G20 uh, determination um, that no significant bank would be allowed to go bust. So that the resolution law has not yet been actually ever put into... There was one Scottish tiny bit, but it was so small, I don't think anybody noticed it. I mean, there hasn't been a significant bank which has been resolved, and the whole of the resolution basis is still, and the resolution law is still, uh, you might describe it as in motion. Now, the... The bit that I really find interesting and most surprising in what Katharina was talking about um, was the suggestion that when you get to a crisis, or perhaps a really serious crisis, the only way actually to get out of it is to suspend the law. And that did make me sit up. Because when financial affairs are going reasonably well, um, as I think both Catherine and Julia said, you don't really notice the law, because what finance essentially is, is it's a uh, people provide, the lender provides money, and the borrower promises to repay. And as long as that promise is carried out, you know, end of story, really. So the law really only comes into its own when the promise is is not carried out, or not carried out properly, or not carried out fully. So it's when things go wrong that the law really does come into its own. Because you've got to decide then when things have gone wrong, you know, who who has what right to what. Um, When things are going right, it's just sort of, as I, I think it was Julia said, it's sort of humming noise in the background. So is it really the case that when a full crisis hits, you've got to suspend the law. And this really did surprise me. I'm not quite certain what laws it was that are being suspended. Um, Because the crisis was effectively resolved um, by the authorities and the central bank. The central bank's providing liquidity, which they're always able to do. They have an absolute right to do that, breaking no law. And the ministries of finance are stating that if the worst came to the worst, that they would use funds to support the continuing operation of the banking system. And again, they can do that. And I don't actually see what laws are being suspended. I don't really follow this idea that when you've got a crisis, you've got to suspend the legal system. Certainly the legal system would be put under pressure. I think what would happen... Uh, to the legal arrangements, I mean, if Greece should be have a disorderly departure uh, from the euro, I mean, the legal problems would be huge. But I don't know that you would suspend them. Um, and I really find that really um, quite difficult. Um, and indeed, the central banks have got far more power after the crisis. They got macro prudential. The Bank of England has got the PRA. Central banks are now doing far more than they than they ever did. But in what way has that been a suspension uh, of, the, of the legal system? Admittedly, there are loads of people who think that central banks have now have got too much power and that there ought to be greater boundaries to what they do. Um, but I, 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 I really am... I, I'm surprised by lawyers saying that when things get tough, you've got to suspend the law. I thought that's actually when the law comes into its own. Um, so I, I was a bit... bit I, I, I find that bit very difficult to understand. Um, and I hope that Katharina will come and, and uh, elucidate a bit more what she, she means by, uh, you know, when you get into a real crisis, you've got to suspend the law. I, I, just, I just don't follow it. Thank you very much. Very important questions thrown back at the lawyers. Uh, but before I give the floor back to the lawyers, I'll invite John to give his view um, on the topic. Now, I do want to thank Eva for creating this fantastic event, and especially for assigning me to read the papers of Julian and Katharina. 
I mean, I think both papers, they definitely do succeed in expanding our understanding of this very complex financial system we live in. I learned a lot, and my thinking my, and my writings on the subject will very much be affected by what I read. Economists, as both authors sort of point out, tend to ignore law just a little bit too much, especially when it comes to systemic risk. And, of course, this is exactly why when we set the systemic risk center up in the first place, we were very happy that both Julia and Eva were founding partners of the centers and worked very closely with us because you can't separate the law away from finance. However, in reading the papers, it was not all smooth sailing. I had the impression at times that both authors were deliberately set out to upset us economists, <laughs> especially the neoclassical type of economist. And here I have to make an admission. My name is John. I'm a neoclassical economist. <laughs> I think the problem really arises because of terminology and methodological approaches are so different. When one writes across disciplines, language becomes very important, especially since particular phrases and concepts can have very different meanings in different disciplines. In economics, in economics, what might seem to be common language to us, understood by all, with a particular theoretic understanding is, as hammered into you going through graduate school, can seem quite alien and bizarre to a lawyer. And I think that really came across in reading both papers. However, that's detail and not important. Fundamentally, I think that the legal theory of finance as presented in Katrina's paper and the sociological dimension in Julia's papers and both of the talks today are very important contributions to the literature and I think very complementary in how they expand our understanding of the world. One could, though, expand the discussion a little bit by, for example, a discussion of how politics interact with the system. Katrina's uh, Columbia colleague, Charles Calamiris, has a fascinating book on how political considerations and lobbying strongly affect evolution of financial systems and financial markets, how, how that makes some markets and some countries fragile and ineffective and others not fragile and robust. And in reading both papers also, I did miss a discussion on what is the objective of the whole exercise. I don't think that was mentioned in the discussion very much either. What is the point of the financial system? Does the financial system meet our objectives or does it not? And if not, how should one go about constructing a financial system that better meets our objectives? And perhaps this is the one area where the economists can make a contribution to the overall discussion. Now, the title of today is The Law of Finance and the Abyss. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the abyss. And perhaps starting with the mathematization of finance, as Julia uh, talks, talk, talks about in her paper. Financial instruments are very often priced by complex financial models, and certainly they are risk-assessed with models. All of these models are fragile, and all of these models have non-verifiable assumptions. These models are inaccurate and very easy to manipulate in a way that is non-verifiable. Not too dissimilar from, from Julia's example in her talk about clever lawyers. So I think the, the, the mathematicians display that role in a different part of the system. The mathematization of finance directly undermines other forms of rules imposed on the system and undermines the objectives of the authorities. Mar market participants are, of course, directly incentivized to maximize the complexity of the operating environment they are in and to make finance as complex as possible, and mathematics is a great tool for that purpose. And the authorities are highly supportive of that. The regulators... They, the system is so complex that one now needs sophisticated models to understand the system, models that distill extreme complexity into a small set of numbers. The regulators like this because it gives them the pretension that they understand a complex system because they have numbers on a computer screen. I think this is just a recipe for manipulation and ineffective regulations. Perhaps the financial system is so complex 
that it does not lend itself well to regulation by micro-rules, uh, so common in the Basel Accords. And if you try to regulate the system by macro-rules, it is all sorts of unforeseen consequences. Now, one of the great dilemmas of financial regulation is that we want a financial system that is safe and avoids crisis, but we also want a financial system that contributes to economic growth. And, of course, these objectives are not compatible. Now, one simple manifestation of this is that the authorities have been very successful recently in curtailing risk-taking. And anybody who warned against this a few years ago, especially about the distributional impact of increasing capital, they were ignored. The politics said reduce risk. And we have to keep it's all politically driven. Today, the authorities, at least in Europe, have woken up to this danger of what they now call de-risking, and say it's bad, even though it's all driven by regulations in the first place. And they noticed, belatedly, how it disproportionately hits SMEs. Mm. And that has, of course, given rise to another political solution called the Capital Markets Union. And so the cycle continues. Um, an LSE professor writing in 1944, Friedrich Hayek, and he was writing about central planning at the time, he might just as easily have been writing about financial regulations and macroprudential policy. It is not possible for the authorities to understand the system sufficiently well to prevent the wrong type of behavior. It is not possible to aggregate all the relevant information in one place in order to exercise effective control. In, instead, the tool used by the authorities, both in the private and public sectors, is to rely on models and to rely on laws. But models just present a caricature version of the world, a caricature version that not only misses the salient features, but even more importantly, allows financial institutions considerable scope for manipulation of the rules. Laws only capture the danger as seen by the writer when the law is written. To this, we can add a key insight from economics which is that the financial system is not invariant under observation. The large number of students who are studying finance and LSE, be they in my department finance or Julia's department law, they are not studying finance out of an abstract academic interest. Students interested in alt altruistic study do not pick finance in LSE. They are studying finance so they can influence the system for private gain. Any study of the financial system endogenously changes it. And that is why it is so hard to regulate finance. But however, that's too pessimistic. This is also why the financial system is so resilient. If the financial system gets into a crisis state, the private incentives of economic agents is to behave in a way that pulls the system out of a crisis. The financial system is self-correcting. It pulls itself away from the abyss in time. And well-meaning uh, macroprudential regulations are unlikely to make the system more stable, while certainly they make the system more costly and more protective of incumbents. The resulting costs are borne by the most vulnerable and important marginal borrowers in the system, the SMEs. They're exactly what we need for economic growth. I saw a number in the Financial Times this week that said large banks, now 10% of staff of large banks are engaged in compliance. That just cannot be a good use of resources or have, have a good impact on SME borrowing rates. I think it's much better to borrow from Schumpeter and his notion of creative destruction, encourage competition and discourage uh, protectionism and discourage state guarantees. The financial system is founded by law, and that is why Katrina's legal theory of finance is so important and it was so interesting for me to read. That has definitely many lessons for us economists. And similarly, we, we economists do tend to ignore the connection of finance to society, and that is also why Julia's paper uh, is so fascinating to read. And with that, I do thank them for coming here and speaking to us on this topic.
Thank you very much to John. I'm, I'm delighted that, that not only lawyers manipulate, also those who build models and mathematicians do. <laughs> it makes me feel better. Um, and um, before I hand over to the floor for some questions, let me allow the, uh, Katharina in particular to respond to Charles's question about um, was it really the case that law was suspended? Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. So, so let me just make, um, make clear that I don't think it's a good idea to suspend the full force of the law. Ideally, we should not. I would also admit that sometimes line drawing becomes difficult, right? What is an interpretation of a legal rule and what is actually a suspension of that legal rule? There's a gray line here, right? And we can, of course, have a debate case by case. But let me just start with the basic principles. If we enforce a debt moratorium, that's clearly a suspension of the full force of the law. We're using law to suspend the contracts. We are using law to suspend the commitments. Now, functionally speaking, I don't think there's a difference between sending, I'm saying I'm going to suspend your contracts or I hand you, the debtor, the cash to pay your creditors, although I don't owe you the cash. So the key question is then, do I owe you the cash? And that depends. Well, banks that had access to the discount window of the central bank, they had a right to access the discount window. Others did not. There was no good reason for the investment banks to get access to the discount window. They were basically told to transform themselves overnight into a holding bank and thereby get access to the discount window. AIG was an insurance company, and it, you could lend to its own, it only under a Federal Reserve Act provision that says you can lend against adequate collateral in times of emergency. So the Federal Reserve is basically exercising its emergency powers. Now then the big debate is what is adequate collateral. And I talked to a lawyer who was deeply involved in the rescue of AIG and what they actually did. You know, they had decided for Lehman Brothers, they decided it's not enough adequate collateral. The bank's basically insolvent, so we have to let it go. And then we see what happened. So we did not... We basically played by the rules. We see what happened. The bank went under. With AIG, of course, they already had cold feet. And in order to justify, to invoke the provision under the Federal Reserve Act that allowed the Federal Reserve to lend, they basically had to find equity. So they walked over to the offices of AIG and tried to find all the certificates for shares, that they have real equity there. And they opened the doors that hadn't been opened for quite some time. So again, where actually, where's the legal documentation? Then they thought they found enough and they said, well, we now have to go back to the New York Fed. Should we get, get basically an armored vehicle because we're talking about billions of dollars of equity now backing the, um, the commitment that the government is basically going to make vis-a-vis -vis AIG. And they decided that that would be actually too too much of, you know, sort of a stirring up journalists and, and, and the media. So basically they put it in the back and they walk back to the Federal Reserve. So you could say, of course, in this case, this was backed by the Federal Reserve Act because in emergency situations you can exercise your lending powers. But it's a rather extensive interpretation of the Act and I think has been discussed as such. It could still be within those powers. But functionally speaking, I don't think there's much of a difference between saying um, we are now enforcing a debt moratorium or we're giving liquidity where under the ex-ante rules there was no expectation and certainly no legal obligation to offer liquidity. So we have to, so if we basically let the system play out itself, then we have, of course, a run in a situation of a crisis. If everybody enforces the rights if they had, as they had committed ex-ante, we will have a run. We have to play it out. We have to go through the full cycle of devaluating assets and, and panic fire, fire sales of assets. If we want to stop that, we at some point have to tell some pe people to stop who think that they have rights that they want to enforce, right? We use, of course, bankruptcy as a way to buffer the effects, saying stay Everybody says it's a legal rule, and now we're trying to sort out what's going on. But we have allowed too many parties, I would argue, to have rules that allow them to pull out the assets before bankruptcy, even after bankruptcy was invoked. That's part of the netting rules, right? And in that situation, if you're there, you basically have to tell them exposed, actually, no, you can't, or you have to instead, because you don't want to do this, you don't want to be so explicit about suspending the full force of the law, you use the liquidity injection, but functionally speaking, I'd say it's the same thing. Thank you. Not convinced. <laughs> um, central banks are not supposed to lend to insolvent institutions, but you never know what solvency actually is at a point of time. I go back to your Northern Rock. I mean, the the um, 
If you took the losses that had been incurred up to the time when Northern Rock got into trouble, the losses were fairly small. If you could look forward at the expectation of what might happen, uh, given the probable downturn in the housing market, Northern Rock was insolvent. So looking at it one way, it was solvent. Looking at it another way, it was probably insolvent. I The the, the solvency of a a corporation depends very much on what you think is going to happen. And nobody knows what's going to happen. So you can't... Unfortunately, the word solvent and insolvent is, is, is so fuzzy as to almost be meaningless. And meanwhile, a central bank has an overriding objective which is to maintain the health of the country as a whole. And if it needs to extend the line of collateral on which it's going to lend, that's in support of its overriding objective. And I would have thought... um, Yes, of course you can interpret um, what the position of a central bank is, but... Um, certainly with Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, I don't think the Fed ever overstepped, um, nor did the ECB, nor did the Bank of England, nor is the Bank of Japan. Uh, you have to be a very tight um, interpreter of the law to say that the central banks suspended the law during the crisis. Maybe we can find some middle ground by saying um, but there's basically, in the middle of the crisis, we take recourse to the elasticity of the law. Correct. And then we give somebody, and of course, according to Schmidt, always the one who calls the emergency situation is the sovereign. So in the end, it's the central banks in our systems who determine when the law should be more or less elastic. But that's in support of an overriding objective for the social welfare of the country. But we could have a de- normative debate about whether we can achieve that by offering liquidity here or if offering liquidity there. So I do agree that the central banks did a great job in basically rescuing the system, as I suggested, but I also would argue that what they've done had had certain distributional effects and probably also could have done, been done differently. But everything the central bank does is distributional. I agree effect. with that. There is nothing it does... And it's, it's actually virtually impossible to think of an action, an actual action of a central bank which does not have distributional effects. It's just whether you like them or not. <laughs> I think it's also we've only just noticed as well. <laughs> Good Lord, what were you all doing? <laughs> I, look, I'm central banks basically lower and raise interest rates. When they do that, they have an enormous distributional effect between borrowers and lenders as part of the exercise. I know, did, did you really not no, notice that, Julia? <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much to the speakers. Um, thank you all for coming here and also for your contributions. <laughs>